Hey, well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you. If you're glad in church to be in church, say amen. amen. If you're glad to be in church, say that's right. If you're glad to be in church, say you are the best. It's the only time that happens all week. So I figure like I'm going to use the mic for that. Awesome. Hey, so glad you're here. Um, and we are in this series today called What Everybody's Talking About. And we've been just covering some topics that people are leaning into, that people are talking about, just to make our faith practical, to know where, you know, how we can make our faith come alive on a day-in, day-out basis. And so we've dealt with, kind of waded into some of the heavier topics. And last week, as part of this series, um, I launched a, a message around sexuality and realized, as I'm preparing for it, that it may take longer than one week. So I extended it to this week. It's pastoral prerogative, I guess. And so we launched last week because Everybody is talking about sex, aren't they? Like, think about it. It is used to sell everything from candy to cars to playing cars to whatever. I mean, we are talking about it. And so what, what we just want to unpack what the Bible has to say about this idea of sex and sexuality. Now, Philip Yancey is a Christian author. And he, I read this last week. I just want to reiterate it again. Um, he's a great thinker. He was the editor of Christianity Today for years. And he says this, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. And so what I was, my attempt uh, starting last week to, was to present a persuasive point of view on God's view about sex. And for those of you who were last week and had to sit next to your parents, I'm sorry. Um, but today, you're going to be glad you're sitting by them, not really. Um, and so we talked last week about God's good gift of great sex. And I'm also praying that in 10 months we'll have a nursery full of babies. And so, but today, hey, we're going to go a little bit different. We're going to talk a little bit about, a lot about homosexuality and transgender. And uh, I may use the letters LGBT. I know it's a lot longer than that now. There's a lot more letters and uh, symbols that go along with that. And not to be offensive, but just for sake of communication. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You brought friends today and you're thinking, Stephen, of all Sundays, I really wish you would preach on money. Today is the day. Um, because nobody ever wants you to preach on money. Um, but I think this is an issue. This is a, a, a topic that affects all of us, doesn't it? Man, if we have friends who may be struggling with us, we may have kids, and we may think we believe one way, but we don't even know why we believe that way. And it's a personal issue for me. I, have a, I had a good friend in my neighborhood. His name was Willie. Now, Willie lived in my neighborhood for 10 years before I met him. 10 years before I met him. I would see Willie walking down the street, and Willie would always have his head down. And Willie would always have earphones in when I, if I happened to pass him on the street. And I could tell that he wasn't talking to anybody because his phone would ring when he went by me. I could tell he was just avoiding saying hello to me. So eventually one day, I'm, I'm out on the trails back behind my house, and I run into Willie. And he's going to be forced to speak to me because there's only one way in, one way out. So I'm like, hey, Willie, how you doing? Or I didn't even say Willie because I didn't know his name. I'm like, hey, how you doing? And he said, hey. He says, are you the pastor? I'm like, what? What do you mean? Like, we've, I've lived here for 10 years, the one thing you know. Now, now, this is where your job and my job is different. When I move into a neighborhood, everybody knows where the pastor lives. I think they put it in the HOA covenants. It's the very last item. The pastor lives in that house. Like, everybody knows. And he had some preconceived ideas of what I may think. Because, see, Willie was gay, and Willie lived with his partner down the street from me. So I struck up a friendship with Willie. And Willie would call me on occasion. He would stop by the house. We'd meet each other in the street. We'd stop and talk. Um, we would, you know, hang out with our dogs. Um, and Willie, even at one point, we had an opening in our student ministry. Willie called and wanted to know if he should apply for the job. 
right? So we had, we had a relationship. Willie passed away, and my wife and I were invited to the memorial service for Willie. So, so this is something that I'm not just divorced from, something that just the Bible says something about it. I've got to get up here and teach it. Like, personally acquainted with this, as many of you are. So it's a pastoral issue for me. And we're an equipping over entertaining church. Somebody say amen right there. Like, we're equipping over entertaining. More than anything, we want people to be equipped to live out their faith. And I believe that there's so much, first of all, there's misconceptions around this idea and this topic. There's also um, some people who believe certain things that have no idea why they believe what they believe. And so today, that's one of my goals today is for us to be equipped to understand why we believe the way that we do believe. You know, I wrote this quote down. It says, we have so sexualized our identity, we have lost sight of eternity. Amen. We have so sexualized our identity. We live in a culture that's so oversaturated with sexuality. We have lost sight um, of eternity. And eternity is what we're supposed to be living for. Let me just read this. We don't have a screen for it, so just listen for a second. Paul writes this. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Amen? He says, come on, amen? He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, so there's coming a day in eternity when this life will pass away. When everything that we believed, everything that we thought, all that's going to be tested. And we're going to see exactly what's going to remain. And so we know that what truth does is truth brings freedom. Don't forget this. Like truth is not a hammer to hurt people, but it's a lifeline to love people. And so today, this is my goal as I'm up here to talk about this particular topic and to do it with as much grace as I can, but also as much truth as I can. Because if you live in the messy middle, you never get to the other side of the storm. Amen. And so we're going to kind of wade into this. Now, here's my approach today. I'm going to start out talking about like, how do we disagree with people in a way that, that we don't hate them? Have you noticed that we have lost the ability to disagree in our culture? Like if you disagree with somebody, what do you got to do? You got to throw a rock at them. You got to demean them. You got to diminish them. You got to dehumanize them. And there's got to be a better way, guys. There has got to be a better way. So that's how I'm going to start the message is talking a little bit about that. I want to recap last week, okay? If you were here, you know how much fun it was, right? So um, we want to just do it all over again. And so if you haven't heard that, you should go back and listen. But I'm going to recap because that actually paints the picture for God's design of sex. And then I want to deal with um, this idea of homosexuality and this topic and as well as uh, a little bit on gender issues. And then I just want to be able to paint a way forward at the end. Does that sound like a winner? Good. I'm glad it does because that's what we're doing. Hey, so let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. I always want you to go grab your Bible. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18 today. Um, you know, we, we believe uh, sola scriptura as the great Protestant reformers taught us that the Bible is the sole place of authority, but we believe that it points to, don't forget this, Jesus. And in Jesus is where life comes together. And in Jesus, we find freedom. In Jesus, we find everything our hearts have ever been looking for. We should never back down from Jesus being primary in everything. And so I'm going to kind of tell this story, read this story to try to paint the picture of how to disagree in grace. And then, um, because most of you will probably agree with me, I don't even know why I'm doing this, right? Um, did nobody laugh there? Come on, help me out. Uh, verse 9, it says this, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Now, when you think about contempt, what that means is they treated others as nobodies, right? And, and if we're honest, one of the things that our culture 
trumpets is that Christians hate gay people. That Christians hate gay people. Nothing's further from the truth. Like if you believed that to be a Christian meant that, you, you, you were misinformed. And if, if you feel like you've been treated that way, I, you are misinformed. That's not the way that Christians operate. It says they treat others with contempt. It says two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. Now a Pharisee in that culture was the professional Christian, okay? They were the ones who always get asked to say the blessing at the Thanksgiving dinner. And at Christmas, it's kind of like when I go somewhere, they're always like, hey, let Stephen pray. He's the professional. Glad to do it, $100. I mean, whatever you think, you know. I'll come to your venue. We'll travel. Um, and so the Pharisee is one everybody looked up to. And this is the other one was a tax collector. So tax collector was the lowest of the low. And I'll, I'll unpack a little bit more about that in a second. So the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust. Now extortioner would have been a tax collector. Unjust would have been a tax collector. Adulter or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. So here's what he's saying. God, you should be grateful that I'm on your team. You're lucky to have me, God. Look at all that I do. Look how good I am. It says, but the tax collector was standing far off and wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't say, God, it really wasn't that bad. I didn't really do that much. I didn't steal that much money. It's not what he says. He says, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. And I think there's some great lessons and warnings for us in this passage. If you think about a tax collector, if I were just to describe one for you real quick. One tax collector um, who is famous in the Bible is a guy named Matthew. And Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. You may have heard the book that he wrote called The Gospel of Matthew. It's included in the Bible. So, so imagine you meet somebody as you're out um, in your day-to-day -day in the great city of Milton, Georgia. And you find out that they're, that they're a pimp. They have a red light on the front door. That they have a porn shop down in Valdosta, which seems to be where all of them are if you look at the billboards, if you've ever been in South Georgia. Taking all that money and funneling it into the cartels in Mexico and then taking that money and he's actually helping fund drone bombers in the Ukraine. You'd be like, I don't want nothing to do with that person. Lowest of the low. Man, who, who, could, who could be in charge of that much destruction? Like, this is how people looked at tax collectors. And so Jesus says, hey, that one went by justified. You know, when he asked Matthew to follow him, he didn't say, hey, Matthew, I want you to follow me, but first, let's talk about what I think about extortion. You need to know where I stand on extortion. It's not, that's not how he did it, is it? He says, hey, come follow me. Now, was Jesus, did, did he believe in extortion? No. Did he confront Matthew with his sin? A thousand percent he did. But here's what Jesus did. He led with love, not the law. Amen, somebody? He led with love, not the law. Now, now, now here's the truth. Jesus wasn't soft on sin, but he fought for freedom. He wasn't soft on sin, but he fought for freedom. And listen, people, people are people to love. And then there's a truth to tell. So we have to approach disagreements or any issue with anybody as people to love and a truth to tell. Listen, if we don't tell the truth, we're never providing anybody any freedom, right? But if we don't love them first, they'll never hear the truth that we have to tell. I wrote this down. It says this, listening generates the grace to tell the truth. 
Listening generates the grace to tell the truth. When I listen to somebody, when I know their story, when I understand where they've been, it doesn't mean I agree with them, but it gives me a bridge to be able to tell them the truth. Listen, this isn't an issue for us to stand on, but it's a people to love. So let me recap from last week. Let's go over to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, we see this whole idea of God's design for men and women happen. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. First command in the Bible. What does it mean? Have sex. Like literally, this is the first command in the Bible. Like what does it say about God that that's the first command in the Bible? It's pretty wild, isn't it? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing. So we see in chapter, when we talked about identity last week, it said God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. See, God relieved from us the pressure of deciding what gender we were. And some of you may not quite be up to the conversation. Let me just fill you in on a certain level about kind of how this is going in culture right now. So in today's culture, kind of the way it works is uh, sex is revealed by biology. It's biological, right? But gender is psychological. So, so gender is what I think and what I decide and how, how I want to decide, not God. And so, but, but sex is biological. So for all you guys that had gender reveal parties, anybody have a gender reveal party? Like, nobody was like, I don't know. Can I? It's fine. Yeah, you did good. All right. Notice what you, you didn't really have a gender reveal party. You had a sex reveal party, but that's a little harder to promote. Am I wrong? <laughs> like sex reveal, no thank you. I thought we weren't supposed to look at that kind of stuff, right? And so, but in our culture, this is what's happened. And as of today, there are 72 different genders that people can select that they are. 72. And if you're not aware of this, especially if you're a parent, you need, you need, to, you need to get up to speed on the conversation. Now, now, clearly, there are some people that may be born uh, in, in one, uh, biologically one way and feel like they're a different one totally. I, I, I would totally say that, that I'm, I don't want to dismiss that at all. But what I want to say is that God has created us biologically and God has created, God has created gender. Now, there's a couple things happening in our culture that you need to be aware of. There are um, uh, puberty-suppressing drugs that are being given to children as young as 11. So the way this is working, and it's not completely widespread, but it is happening. Um, and we know usually once the horse has left the barn, you can't get it back in. So what happens is if, if a kid, and generally it's probably more teenagers than that young, but it is happening that young. If they decide, hey, I, I don't think I'm the gender I was born as, they will take puberty-suppressing uh, drugs until they can decide. Now, now, what we're finding is those particular drugs, which, by the way, are given to men in prison to suppress their sexual drive, those particular drugs have some side effects that are not reversible. And, and what we've also seen, and even though the data is very small, because this is just not a lot of people, is that people who do transition from one gender to the next, they have a higher suicide rate than people who don't. And so one of the arguments for taking those medications is the fact that I, is the anxiety and suicide and depression that kids are facing, but that actually is going to lead them to a worse state than they began in. And an adult's job is to help children. Amen, somebody? Man, and a, a parent's job is to help kids, not to let them decide what, what they want to do and then empower them to do it when we think it is destructive. So as parents, you need to be in the game. You need to be in the game. 
And I can't imagine parenting. And some of you are like, thank goodness I'm not a parent. What about grandparents in the room? Uh, And this is at our doorstep. There was a teacher, excuse me, there's a dad in Canada that is in prison right now because his 14-year-old took some hormones to transition. He spoke out against them and wouldn't stop speaking out against them, prescribed by his counselor at school, and he's in jail today. There's an Irish teacher in Ireland who is a Christian who has a religious objection to this particular uh, treatment who is in prison today because of that. So we need to be aware of what's happening when it comes to this idea of gender. So identity, man, identity is created by God, male and female. He created them. Now, now also it says we are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And what we talked about last week is that you are royalty. And you are royalty. In Psalm chapter 8, um, David is writing this. He says, what is man? You are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And as, as God's ambassadors here on this earth, we are royalty and we should never eat the crumbs of culture when we have a place at the table of the king. Amen, right there? Like we have this ability, we have a higher sexual ethic. So what Paul has done and what God has done is there's this really high sexual ethic that actually is better for everybody. If I were to read something that was stated about the Roman Empire, which as I shared last week, I mean, Rome made Vegas look like Disney World. It was, had such a wildly different sexual ethic. And it said this, The Christian sexual ethic, as opposed to the Romans, elevated women, dignified marriage, and redeemed male sexuality. The effect was a slow but effective reform of sexual ethics and the broader Roman society. In short, the ancient world discovered that the Christian sex ethic was better for men, better for women, better for children and the state. Like, let's never forget that the gospel has always taken people who were marginalized and raised them up to equal value. Amen? Right? Like, when women couldn't vote, couldn't give a witness in court, what did Paul and what did Jesus come along and do? Man, they elevated the status of women. I mean, when children were treated as property, not even given names until they were a little older, just in case they died, what did Jesus say? Let the little children come to me. Jesus always is raising the ethic. Uh, the sexual ethic, and it's always best. And so we talked about identity. We talked about the image of God. And then we talked about just God's plan for sex in the context of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, um, the writer says this, that God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up that place with flesh. And the rib that God had taken from the man he made into a woman. Not, not, not from his head that she was above him or from his feet that she was below him. From his rib that she was equal to him. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man will leave his father and mother, his, hold fast to his wife. They will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So as we looked at that passage, we see that the context of marriage is one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. Right? One man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. Now, now there's, there's some sexual sins that come out even of, of one man and one woman, right? 
And we talked about two of the big ones there. Number one, we talked about pornography. The, the devastating effects it's having in marriages and on men and on women, that 70% of men looked at pornography this last week, 30% of women looked at pornography this last week, that what it does is it fuels the objectification of the human body and makes sex just a physical appetite like eating a hamburger. And I think we all know that it's a little bit different than that. And so we get this model from Jesus, and Jesus calls us to sexual purity. Now let me ask you this. How is your sexual purity? Like, if you just ask yourself the question, how is my sexual purity? I mean, you could be like, you know what? I'm married, man. I'm just having sex with, with, my, with my spouse. What about your thought life? Like, anytime you lingered a little too long on that TV show, any of those series you're binge watching have some sexual scenes, you'd be like, I do not want my mother to see this. And anytime you take a second look, Right? How is your sexual purity? Because Jesus said, if you've lusted in your mind, you've committed adultery in your heart. So, so even no matter where you fall on the homosexuality or heterosexuality topic, this is something that, that we all need to deal with. You know, there was a, a saying, uh, another passage that I read last week, another quote that said this, the only way you can really know that you trust Jesus as king and believe in the resurrection is if you're financially generous and sexually pure. There's nothing more countercultural in indicating you believe in another world that is to come, that is eternity. And so we have these heterosexual sins that come along. So now we know how we need to treat people, people to love, a truth to tell. We recapped last week. Let me just kind of start with the passage we ended with last week. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Now, Paul is writing this, and Paul is writing this to the a church in Corinth, hence the word Corinthian. And Paul is combating uh, you know, a, a sexual sin that there was a guy who was sleeping with his dad's wife, his stepmom. And so Paul is writing to that, and so Paul is correcting some other sexual sins in the church. So in verse 6, excuse me, in verse 9, he says this. <clears throat> Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Now, unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus just talked about the Pharisee. Remember we started with that? The Pharisee who thought he was righteous but wasn't. And the tax collector who everybody thought was unrighteous who actually was. So the righteous are the people who were approved by God. He says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. Now that's, that's the word pornea. It's kind of a junk drawer term. Anybody, you got junk drawers at your house? You just throw everything in, Right? This is what Paul's doing like. It's a wide-ranging topic of, of sexual immorality. He says, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, or drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So Paul is writing to people in his church that fulfilled all, it, all these different categories. Not the same person on all of them, but fulfilled all these categories. And one of them that we see here, men who practice homosexuality, says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God. And so <clears throat> I think that one of the things that I, I just want to start out by telling some. Uh, just a, a few really short vignettes of, of true stories about people who would come down on a different side of the fence of same-sex attraction who would call themselves gay or homosexual. Man, there's a story of Brad. You know, when Brad was a little boy, he grew up like every other little boy. 
loved the things that every other little boy loved. And he, he loved wiffle ball. That was his favorite sport. But anytime the sun was out, Brad was outside with his friends. And as they got to be that age where boys start to notice girls just a little bit, and where girls still diminish boys, um, you know, he began to notice that his friends all liked girls. They began to talk about girls. And they began to, you know, talk about going out with them. And, and, he, and it took him a while. But he realized, I don't, I, don't have those same, I don't have those same feelings. I don't really want to be in those conversations. And then a little while longer than that, he begins to realize, I'm attracted to the same sex. I'm attracted to other boys. And he has no category for that. And so he begins to psychologically beat himself up, say, why don't I like girls? What is my problem? What is wrong with me? And so he begins to fall into depression and anxiety, and he has no outlet to take his conversation to. Like, that, that's a person to love right there. I could tell you the story of Jillian. Jillian, at the age of four, began to be sexually assaulted by her dad until the age of roughly 14, 15. When she was able to finally escape from her home, only to find rescue at the hands of other men who did what? Continued to abuse her. So by the time she got to her mid-20s, she wasn't same-sex attracted, but she for sure wasn't attracted to men. And she would never trust herself to them again. Uh, then there's Mike. You know, Mike grew up with an overbearing mom who just wanted to put her thumbprint on everything that he did. And all Mike did was long for his dad to come along and do the things that dads do with little boys, whatever it is they like. Maybe it's playing baseball or trains or, you know, going to a, going to a sporting event. But his dad was absent. And his dad was always passive. He was never there. So eventually what he did was he sexualized his desire for a dad. And he found him sexually active with other teenagers. And now I'm not saying that, that every case of someone who's same-sex attracted, man, that's a result of trauma or abuse. I do believe that people are born with this tendency that, that they, they are drawn more to, towards people of the same sex. But what, what I am saying is that everybody has a story. We don't know what that story might be because they are people to love and we have a truth to tell. Now, with that said, what I'd like to do is I just want to walk through the Bible on this particular topic because what I've discovered is that I've heard people say they disagree with homosexual lifestyle, or however you want to phrase it. But they don't even know why they believe what they believe. And I've heard people say, I don't think the Bible says that, but they don't even know why they believe what they believe. So I want to walk through some of the scriptures where it's addressed with very, very specifically. Now, whenever you're interpreting the Bible, there's a few things you have to do. Number one, it's called exegesis, exegete. Let's all say exegete together. Just kidding. That's a really hard word to say. Exegete. What that means is pulling the truth out of the text. It means I get into the text, I understand the context, I understand what it means, I do the research, I do the hard work, and I pull the truth out of the text. Now, the second thing you do is you look at tradition. Because there's a lot of really smart people that have studied the Bible and written about the Bible and that we look back on that they were anointed to be able to bring truth to us. So you look at tradition. And then the third thing you do is you look at the culture. Like, what is culture saying about this? How does it apply in our culture? Now, what, what can tend to happen and what has happened on this idea of sexuality is culture has now become the loudest voice on sexuality. And we begin to hear from culture, and when we disagree with culture, what happens is you are hateful, you're a bigot, and it's hate speech. That is just not true. 
That is just not true. That is from people who are extreme. That is not true of Jesus. But we can't let culture determine what God's word says. Amen? Right there. So, again, this is going to get a little technical, but I think it's really important. And I'll go really slow. Um, And I'd love for you to write these things down because you need to know how to deal with this. So, as we look at, let me look at tradition for just a second. And I'll start with that. Up until the 1960s, up to 1973, this idea of homosexuality, of same-sex, uh, same-sex sexual activity was never even, it, it's not even on the radar of any denomination. It's not on the radar of any Christian thought up until roughly the 60s. Like, it's never approved of in the Bible. It's never spoken of in positive terms. But, you know, I think some of us may remember what happened in the 60s, but specifically what, what happened in, um, in Greenwich during the Stonewall riots. That was a turning point for our country. Now, Debbie and I have had opportunity to be there and to kind of walk around. I would encourage you to go take a walking tour, understand what was happening during those times, understand how the tide turned at that moment. But up until that point, tradition would have never held that this was an appropriate interpretation of the Bible, that same-sex sexual activity was okay. Now, now, as we look at what Paul has written here, and this is where it's going to get technical, he uses this phrase that we have translated into English, um, nor men who practice homosexuality. Okay, Men who practice homosexuality. Now, now one argument from uh, people who think the Bible condones this is that um, the word homosexual is never used in the Bible. Kind of true, kind of isn't. It's kind of true in that that wasn't necessarily a real word, It isn't true when the ideas and the phrasing and other ways of saying it are not condoned in the Bible. So so that's really not a good argument that the Bible doesn't address and the Bible condones it. Not really a good argument. And so what Paul has done here, Paul has quoted from the Old Testament. Okay, Paul has quoted from the Old Testament. Paul has quoted from Leviticus chapter 18. And let me just read that just for clarity's sake. Leviticus... Chapter 18, you talk amongst yourselves while I find it. Um, Leviticus chapter 18, uh, we're going to start roughly verse 20. Write this down. It says, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. I think we get that, adultery. So make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. And so to profane the name of God, I am the Lord. So Molech was a God. The neighboring nations would sacrifice their children to this God named Molech. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman is an abomination. And it goes on to give a lot of other things to state right here. Now the problem, the problem with using Old Testament only, it's like what's next? Like no bacon? Like what, what's next? Like you can't just appeal to the Old Testament on its own at times to make your case. And so what Paul has done, a couple things happen. There is something in the Old Testament called the moral law. Let's say that together. Moral law. Moral law. It's timeless. It never goes away. Okay? And, and what we see is, there's, for instance, do not kill. You shall not commit murder. It's one of the big Ten Commandments. We know that that one translates. Okay, so, so, so the question is, how do you know if something translates to the New Testament? Well, one of the big tests is, is it repeated in the New Testament? Okay, so you take the Old Testament. If it's repeated in the New Testament, then we know that it's valid for us today. Now, there is no mistaking what Leviticus said. No, there, there is no argument by any scholar or teacher anywhere that would argue what it was saying. 
Here's the connection. All that to be said. It's got to be repeated in the New Testament. The words that Paul used are the exact same words used in Leviticus chapter 18. Exactly the same. Now, Leviticus 18, and this is where it gets, I don't lose me, don't let me lose you right here. So we know that Old Testament's got to be one of the best tests is if it's repeated in the New Testament. Paul is repeating it here in the New Testament. Not only that, Paul's version and the version that they, Paul, who's an expert in the law, for those of you who know Paul, you know he's an expert. Those, he's an expert in the law. This particular, during this time, the law, the Old Testament, while originally written in Hebrew, they relied on a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So Paul is using the same Greek words from the Old Testament as he's writing them in the New Testament. Now, there's two words that are used here, and I'll just to go a little bit further. One is malakoi. Now, malakoi in that culture was a man who looked like a woman, a man who smelled like a woman, someone who was effeminate and someone who was passive. That's the word that's used here. The second word that's used here is a compound word that means man in bed. So when you put those together, it means a man who has sex with a male. That's what he's saying here. Now, one of the arguments on the other side of that, they would say that's not what Paul is saying. Paul was talking about men having sex with boys. Now, in that culture, wildly enough, that was legal and encouraged. But that's not what Paul's talking about because he uses the same exact words that he used over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So um, now, now let's move on. And let's look in Romans chapter 1. Some of you have heard of this passage in Romans chapter 1. Now, Romans uh, has the, the unique ability and gift to condemn all sin, but also get us to grace. It's pretty awesome. How many of you guys have ever heard of the Roman road? Maybe you learned that as kids. So a handful of people. You know, the Roman road was the way that we learned to share the gospel. It's like, here's how I can tell you to have life, to have your sins forgiven, to have the life that you want, to have the hope that you want. Man, we know the Romans road is nothing if not about redemption. Um, and so Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, I'm going to start out, I think, in verse 27. Uh, it says, and Paul is talking about the fact that people sh should be able to look into the stars and know God, right? That they should look out at creation and know that God exists. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 27, he says this, that men like, uh, men like, uh, do I start? I'm going to start at 26, and you just leave that up there for me. But I'm going to start at 26, actually. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So you have this picture of women who are having sex with women. It says, and then the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. Sorry, with men, with women who consume with passion one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. So we see that Paul kind of reaffirms in this again this 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 idea that sex between one man and one man or one woman and one woman is outside the parameters that God has given us, even though Romans is nothing if not about the gospel. I mean, as you walk through the book of Romans, it talks so much about having peace with God, how we rejoice in our sufferings, that God shows his love for us, that Jesus died for us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
good. If God is for us, who can be against us? No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, this is the book of Romans, right? It is the pathway to eternal life and the life that we want. So for people who want to dismiss Paul, you're dismissing eternity. And who would want to do that? And so Paul does that in Romans. And then just uh, over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to just briefly touch on 1 Timothy. Timothy was a letter that Paul had written to his young protege, Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he is talking about the law. And in verse 8, he says this, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. It's good. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and the profane. So what Paul is saying is like the law is for people who don't know. And it gives us the guardrails that we need to get to God. It shows us the things that we may not otherwise know were outside of God's plan for our life. And then what Paul does is he starts walking through the Ten Commandments, starting at commandment. Uh, five. He says this, he says, for those who strike their fathers and and mothers. So you remember the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Students, y'all remember that? Honor your father and mother. We all know that. The next commandment, we know, he says, thou shalt not murder, murder. And so Paul says, for murderers. The next one, he says, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. He says, thou shalt not commit adultery is the next command. So what Paul is doing is actually tying that into sexual sin out from the, the Ten Commandments, which nobody debates as being valid for us today. And then he goes on, liars, thou shalt not lie. He uses enslavers, thou shalt not steal. And so Paul paints this picture out of 1 Timothy. But then, Jesus. Now you may have heard that Jesus never addressed this. And that's, that's one argument that's used. I've heard pastors say that Jesus never addressed this. I got two things to say about that. <laughs> Maybe three, but one I can't repeat in public. Um, so the first thing is that's what's called an argument from silence. Maybe you remember this study in philosophy when you were in college. Now, an argument from silence is a very weak argument because there's a lot of things that Jesus didn't specifically address that we know are wrong and we know are still considered outside of God's plan for us. It would be a little like this. Let's say I were to write a cookbook. And on the first page, I'm like, hey, you're, gonna, you're not going to find any recipes in here for sugar because I believe sugar is like Drano. I believe sugar is poison. So all of our recipes are going to be healthy, they're going to be tasty, and they're not going to have sugar. And then for the rest of the, bio, rest of the cookbook, I don't reference sugar at all. I never put sugar in a recipe, but I never reference it at all. Are you going to deduce from that that, I, that I'm for sugar? Well, of course not. And so an argument from silence is not really a very valid argument. But I don't even think that's the strongest. Jesus did address it. Jesus did address it, and I think he addressed it three times. I'm going to point out one. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is being tested by the Pharisees, and they come and they start asking him some questions about divorce. And they're trying to catch him in a trap. And in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 19, it says this. It says, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Any cause. 
And so Jesus, he doesn't directly answer their question, which is kind of the way he does it. Have you ever noticed this? I would, I would like a yes or no, but he doesn't do that. He just raises the ethic. So he says this. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Which probably has a lot to say about no-fault divorce, if we're honest. Now, what Jesus does here is genius. He doesn't just quote one passage. Jesus pulls in two passages. He could have just quoted one passage and answered the question. But what Jesus did, he goes to Genesis 1 when he talks about God made them male and female. Then he goes to Genesis 2 when he says a man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So Jesus is painting the parameters and the boundaries that are necessary for a sexual relationship. It's a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And so, where does that leave us? I mean, there's, there's some Bible, right? And I think as we look at the Bible and we look at God's Word as authoritative, what we see is that Bible, the Bible talks about and teaches us that sex is for one man, one woman, one lifetime, one flesh. Like that is, anything outside of that is outside God's plan for sex. So where does that leave us? So first of all, I would speak to desire. Desire. For people to have same-sex attraction is not sinful. We have desires many times. Some are holy and healthy and some are not. And so to have a desire is not a sin. Identity. Identity is the next question. You know, and as I said off the top, we have so sexualized our identity that we've lost sight of eternity. We've so sexualized identity. So action. Action is sinful. Same-sex sexual activity is outside of God's plan for a healthy, good, great sex life that God has given us. Now, now what, what do you do if that's you, right? Like, what do you do if that's you? You know, the first thing I would say is, in, in the church, what the Bible has done is something the church hasn't done a great job of. The, the Bible actually celebrates singleness. Now, in the church, we don't do that, do we? Like, we, we're not good at that. We kind of treat being single as like your starter home. Like that's where we're going to start, but eventually we're getting that mansion. You know, Eventually things are going to be better. Eventually we're, we're going to grow up and get where we're going, which is just not true. The Bible at every turn celebrates singleness. Now, now Jesus is single, and I realize you're like, really? That's the one you got, Stephen? Jesus? Um, so let's look at Paul. Paul, especially at this time that he's writing, Paul is single and celibate. Paul is single at this time when he's writing. Paul even goes so far to say, I wish more people were like me, basically so they could be more effective for the kingdom. They could share the gospel more. They could give away more money. They could go to more places. They could go on more trips. They could help expand the kingdom. Like This is what Paul even says about being single. And then in Revelation, what we see in Revelation chapter 14 is that people who are single are given this special duty around celebrating Jesus while he's on his throne. So in the Bible, singleness is actually celebrated. And I know, you know, you may be like, that feels insensitive. You're not single, Stephen. I'm having to be single. you, You don't get to do that. You don't, get to, you don't get to compare your challenges and your pain with somebody else's. Because I can promise you, I can promise you, the people I know in this room and the stories that I've heard, there's, a, there's at least 50 people in here who would tra- trade places with you in a heartbeat. So that's the one place I may be a little firm on. Don't compare your suffering or your cross to bear or your thorn in the flesh with somebody else's because that is not 
fair. It's not fair to them, and it's not fair to you because you know why? Yours matters. Yours matters. Listen, Jesus told us frequently, die to self. Listen, if, you, if we, any of us in the room thought we were going to follow Jesus and life was going to get easier, anybody, that happened for anybody? Rich? Anybody just get more money because you started coming to church? Right? Healthy, all of a sudden, all your aches and pains went away? And that's not the promise of the gospel. Actually, being persecuted, being, pain, being in pain, man, it's going to happen. Suffering is going to happen. That's part of what the, the gospel actually promises us, man. So, so singleness is, is a fantastic option. Now, now, also, transformation is an option for you. Now, I realize this one's difficult, man, to, to have people who transform from, you know, being same-sex attracted to not being same-sex attracted. And there's been a lot of damage done with reparative therapies and all kind of different methods to try to, to try to kind of help people. And I realize that's difficult, but... I do know it's possible because I so firmly believe in the gospel. Man, I so have firmly seen God change lives in India. I've seen him save marriages in Milton, and I've seen him transform families in Uganda. Man, I've seen him lift people up who were dying. I've seen him bring people hope who were hurting. I've seen him heal people who were broken. And I've just seen the gospel work. You know, there's a friend of mine that we had known each other for several years. He was coming to our church with him and his wife and his three kids, and we went and had lunch. He began to share with me uh, his struggle with same-sex attraction. Started when he was a little boy, followed him into teenage years and into college. Um, But then he just began to ask the Lord, and I'm not trying to pretend that's a magic pill by any stretch, but he began to ask the Lord, and he met a girl, and they began to have conversations about it, and they ended up married with now with four beautiful kids, and he's in a marriage, and he has this open conversation with his wife. But I do believe that transformation is possible, and transformation is very important for all of us, isn't it? Transformation is what we're going for. In Romans, in Romans chapter 12, it says this, as I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Like, don't present your, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Hey, and that's our entire body. That, mean, that includes our sexuality. It includes every appetite that we have. To present your bodies holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed. To the pattern of this world, I feel like we should probably listen to that one. But don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't look around at what people are telling you is right. Man, let's look at what God says is right. Man, don't look around at what TV shows or culture or politicians, because they're trying to get elected. Man, let's don't look around at what other people, but let's, let's have a higher ethic than that. Man, if you say you follow Jesus, he gets it all. He gets every single bit of your life. He gets every dollar. He gets every dime. He gets every minute. He gets every year. He gets every thought. He gets every desire. This is what he gets. But be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Hey, what is God transforming in you today? What is God transforming in you today? Are you just at a place in faith where it's like, ah, I am where I am. I'm there. God's not changing you in any way. He's not convicting you of any type of unloving attitude. He's not showing you areas where you can continue to grow to be more like him. Like, like where is God transforming you today? That's what I would ask. Hey, a second question I would have for you. Like, who do you hold in contempt? You know, for too long, there's been these groups of people that the church has kind of been characterized as hating or holding in contempt. And if we're honest, we all have some, we all have some group of people that we hold in contempt. 
And what Jesus tells us is that people are love and we have a truth to share. So we have to be careful about that, man. Do you have anybody that you're holding in contempt? And it could be no matter which side of this, this topic you come down on, right? You could be looking at Christians and saying they're judgmental, and judgmental Christians could be looking at you saying, ah, you don't know what God's plan is for you. And so we, we have to be careful on all of those. And what about your sexual purity? And how is that going? How's your thought life? How's what you watch? If you're married, how, is your, how, how healthy is your sexual relationship with your spouse? Man, these are questions we have to answer because we want to be transformed because God gets it all. Couple of, a couple of closing thoughts. We have to bring our sexuality under the authority of Jesus, and we have to remember we're citizens of two kingdoms. Hello, somebody? Two kingdoms. We live in this kingdom. We're living for that kingdom. There is coming a day, right? We know this. There's coming a day when all this goes away, when every thought that we've had, every action we take, every time we were cowards and every time we were courageous, I mean, it's all going to be brought to the feet of Jesus and it's going to be tested to see if it will stand the test of time. And all this stuff that we spend so much time worrying about, what other people think and am I going to be wrong and what if they don't like me? It's just going to go out the window, man, and we live for eternity. Right? That's the kingdom we live for. And if we're going to live in two kingdoms, we should be the best citizens in both. Right? Don't be showing up late to work and then try to tell your boss some truth. That You shouldn't do that. Like you sh They should know you're the best person for the job. You should be the best employee you can be. You should be the best neighbor that you can be. Man, you should, be, you should invest in the kingdom of God every single day. Like too many people are on the sidelines and they're throwing God a little tip every now and then when they feel a little guilty and they'll serve a little bit and maybe show up at church a couple times a month. And then they wonder about the moral decay that they don't like because they're not in the game. Man, you got to get in the game. Man, we can't sit on the sidelines. The kingdom is too important. Truth brings freedom. And we have the words of life. And rather than thinking that somebody's not going to like us or we're going to be called a hypocrite or somebody's not going to invite us to that Christmas party, man, what if we realize the true gift that we have that is the person of Jesus? Amen. So let's take him. So I hope everything you heard today, you realize the love that I have, first of all, for Jesus, but for you. No matter, like no matter what, right? But also, I think that the truth that we have is so important and that everybody is looking for it. Sometimes they don't even know where to find it. And they can't find it because of our tone. And let that not be said of us. Let that not be said of you. But let's remember, man, grace is available. Strength is available. Purity is available in every area of our lives because we know the one who brings it. Let's pray together.